Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. You're going to be okay in the Evan chair? I I will channel my inner milk bag. <laughs> I always, I hate doing episodes without him. I really do. I won't ever say it to his face. I don't like the guy. I don't like him when I don't like complimenting him because then he he like holds it over your head for years and years. He's that kind of person when where you say something nice to him, he looks at you and just absorbs it and doesn't reciprocate. So he definitely doesn't deserve the kindness. But I really don't like doing episodes without him. He's got that look of you compliment him, and he looks at you with that face face of how dare you speak to me? Yeah, essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he would have loved this. Um, I know. We open the episode sometimes and I try not to do it with complaints because everyone has complaints in the world and our lives are easy. Uh, but one of the funniest and most unique criticisms we got, guess what it is, Brad, over the last two episodes. Oh, what in the fresh hell did I do now? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't you this time. Funny enough. The criticism was, so folks who, who listen to us consistently, will Evan, some... Evan managed to turn a thousand yard stare into a 2000 yard stare. Yeah. That's usually like, that's a requisite, like that, that's a standard one. Uh, this one was, um, folks who listen to us consistently will know some, like, you know, often we have an advertiser and they'll notice when the advertiser drops off. And this person complained that for the last couple episodes, we haven't added an ad spot. And I thought, well, that, that's brand new. That is absolutely brand new. And we're pretty sparse with when we include advertising on the show. Um, and like, Hey, we would love to not have that, I guess, issue now, but that's the first time anyone has ever complained. They said it's made us sound more unprofessional. A thousand percent. That's an advertiser trying to get a discount. Yeah. A thousand percent. That's all that is. (laughs) Hey, I noticed you were missing an ad this episode. Let me tell you about this deal I got for you. (laughs) Uh, Hey, if you're a listener who works for a company who wants to sponsor a a big independent hockey podcast, give us a shout winged wheel pod or pod at winged wheel podcast.com or winged wheel podcast at gmail.com. Either one will work except, except for that commenter specifically. We know what you're up to. Yeah, definitely. We do (laughs) folks. Welcome to the winged wheel podcast down a man and, uh, still ad free for better or worse. It's up to you on this episode. Uh, we're here to talk to you about all things, Detroit Red Wings hockey the world of the NHL, uh, and everything in between. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Brad Crisco for now. And Evan is not with us. He's just sick. He's fine. He's going to be back next episode. We did make that joke like uh, a couple of years ago and someone actually thought Evan died. <laughs> uh, fun fact about Evan, he's actually died in the middle of two episodes and been resuscitated before the end of the episode. Yeah, hands-free. We didn't do anything. His body just like rebooted. <laughs> Uh, on this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, we're going to be talking about Detroit's return to hockey after the All-Star break in what was a bloodbath against the Edmonton Oilers. I, no, no. I saw those comments on Twitter while it was still working. No. What do you mean? It was an intense game. Yeah, it was an intense game. Uh, a bloodbath uh, does not qualify if there's not a fight. Oh, yeah, that's fair. And was there, even, was there even a big hit? No. Brad, stop There ruining. was a lot of annoyances after whistles. It, it was a game full of hatred. I'll leave it at that. Uh, we'll be talking about the different players' stories, the results, and what the Red Wings have uh, to look forward to. An update on Philip Zadina. Uh, Jacob Vrana has been in the news again with some pseudo reports that have been going about that we'll address. Yeah, Jacob Vrana was in the news, but there was no news. 
Welcome to the welcome to Red Wings news right now. Uh, we're not going to be doing anything on Larkin because Larkin the Larkin situation hasn't updated. Uh, we'll be talking about Jake Wallman and what his future with uh, the Red Wings might look like and some NHL news if we get to it. Uh, before that, I have two things to tell you about. Uh, Winged Wheel podcast night, or maybe better said day at the LCA, is on Saturday, April 8th. That is a uh, partnered event where between us, the Winged Wheel podcast, and the Detroit Red Wings, where we host a live episode of the Winged Wheel podcast, uh, which has featured special guests like Ken Daniels and Mickey Redmond. There's merch, prizes, giveaways, there's Q&A, and meet and greet with the special guests, uh, and less importantly, us, the hosts. That's at Hockey Town Cafe, just a stone's throw from the LCA. And then we all go to the LCA and watch the game. April 8th game is against the Penguins. Uh, we have special uh, Winged Wheel podcast sections. We filled up the entire gondola, which is uh, the same level where Ken and Mick call the game from in their booth. Uh, we have upper and lower bowl seats. We're going to be adding more lower bowl seats for you as well. So DetroitRedWings.com slash WWP to get your discounted. You got a Winged Wheel podcast discount on your ticket. And a portion of the proceeds goes to benefit the Jamie Daniels Foundation. So again, that's uh, DetroitRedWings.com slash WWP. And something else, this is quick. So this ends on Thursday night at 11 p.m. We are doing one of a series of auctions where you get two tickets to a Red Wings game. Uh, you get a piece of Winged Wheel Podcast merch, so either a flannel or if you prefer the quarter zip, or we'll let you pick whatever you want from the store. We just assume people will want the flannel. And uh, the biggest part of it, you get to meet Ken Daniels in the gondola from the broadcast booth where he and Mick call the game. So it is an auction package. All proceeds, every single part of the proceeds goes to benefit the Jamie Daniels Foundation. Uh, the link will be in the bio or in the description of this episode uh, as well. If you go to our bio uh, on Twitter or Instagram, you'll be able to find that link as well to the auction site. Auction closes on Thursday night, and this was posted pretty last minute. Uh, so I want to say it uh, the 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 price on this is cheap. So you can get two really good tickets, uh, piece of Winged Wheel Podcast merch that is completely sold out now. So we have like reserve um, pieces left, and a meet and greet with Ken Daniels, and who knows who else you might run into up there. Um, for a great, great price. I think the last I checked, the bid was only like 125 bucks. So uh, if you are interested in that and you can make the Saturday, uh, February 11th game against Vancouver, bid on that. That's cheaper than a meet and greet with Evan. <laughs> by, by a couple orders of magnitude, yeah. Uh, okay, the Detroit Red Wings returned to action against the Edmonton Oilers. They hosted uh, Connor McDavid and company at Little Caesars Arena on Tuesday night. Uh, I actually successfully predicted the score of this game. Yes, you did. I was dangerously I, close to some like fine details too. You were one goal off yeah. by Connor McDavid from getting it exactly correct. Yeah, yeah. So the Red Wings ended up losing five two, but it wasn't a it wasn't that bad of a game from Detroit. I'd say um, they lost five two, so I'm not going to call it a good game. But in terms of facing Connor McDavid and the Edmonton Oilers, I thought there were stretches of hockey where Detroit really held their own. The Red Wings consistently do a good job of shutting down Connor McDavid and yet still losing to the Edmonton Oilers. It's one of the biggest mysteries of life. It's like in the Pokemon world, if Charizard's biggest weakness was like Slowpoke. <laughs> like it's just it doesn't make sense that this is the team that can consistently shut him down. Appealing to the nerds this episode. I like it. Yep. Yeah. I I missed my Last of Us uh reference last episode. Uh, um so with all with apologies to you know, Bill and Frank, I, I will make up for it. Um, I really got to start watching. It is such a good show. Yeah. Even the like episode four was kind of a bit of a letdown and it was still like an eight and a half out of 10. Huh. Um, 
But yeah, they carried the play. They got absolutely shelled for the first five minutes of the game, managed to walk away with that uh, 0-0, mostly thanks to Billy Huso, and then ran Edmonton's show for the rest of the period, which included a goal and three posts. Uh, you know, getting back to that lack of finishers on the Red Wings, kind of with a fine point on it. It was a symphony, post after post after post. Yep, Fabry whiffed on an empty net and it hit the post. Uh, Berggren had a really good shot that went off the post. Sider had a rocket that went off the post. Um, I'm pretty sure the one that Sider put off the post, they could hear in Ann Arbor. That made a sound. Uh, but yeah. yeah his it, wrister. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but they, they played a really good game. They had a 40-second breakdown in the second period, which led directly to two Edmonton goals. Um, you know, there's a power play goal late. I, I can't even remember Edmonton's third goal. And then Bertuzzi with a pretty bad giveaway on the empty net, but Fogel's second goal. Yeah. Yeah. They carried the play for a majority of that game against a very good and, you know, Edmonton, we always make fun of, but they've got points in what nine of the last 10 games they are on an absolute heater right now. Edmonton has been on a heater since we talked shit about Edmonton, how they can't get McDavid to the playoffs consistently. Yeah, and and they've been on an absolute heater, and the Red Wings went in, played a, a great game, and this was the quintessential game we've been talking about all year. Uh, you could see all the ways that the Red Wings have improved this year very clearly, and you could see all the moments where they very clearly are missing an elite scorer, an elite shooter, that yeah. that Jacob Verona type, that... Yep you know, uh, Patrick Line type to go a little more high end, but uh, it is what it is. And this is a very prototypical Red Wings game this year. I was glad to see them come out of the break, not half asleep though. That, yeah. And you know what the nicest thing was just to break down the, the good parts of the Red Wings game, the first goal halfway through the first where it was, and it feels silly to say vintage because we're going back a season, but that was vintage Raymond Larkin Bertuzzi goal. And God, did Bertuzzi need that goal. I thought that was, oh, we got all parts of Bertuzzi's game. Oh, did we ever? Tuesday night. We got the highs and we got the lows, um, which I think is better than even expected uh, compared to how Bertuzzi has played. But yeah, that Raymond to Larkin to Bertuzzi goal, that goal was so key, not just to get the the team into it, but get the crowd into it. Like you said, the, the Red Wings didn't come out asleep and they have a bad habit of starting games asleep. Uh, but yeah, just Bertuzzi. Larkin mentioned, I think Larkin mentioned that Bertuzzi stayed in Detroit uh, for the break to work on his game. And that had to have been a nice payoff for him. Uh, obviously, Edmonton's depth scoring then were the difference makers. And it's not like Detroit was perfect and they were fluky goals. No, they were really good by Detroit standards, but they had defensive lapses where like Hronik and Schrott got exposed or uh, maybe Huso, the goals he let in weren't the best, whatever it might be. Uh Edmonton still did deserve that win. Detroit's special teams really let them down as per usual. Uh, More so their power play. They let in one short, uh, one goal in the penalty kill. But when you're going up against Edmonton's power play. Which may be the best of all time. Yeah. So going, what were they, one one for four? That, yeah. That feels like a win. Uh, I think they're at 30% right now. So that's actually better. They, yeah, they average. actually did better than the average. The power play was especially a problem because they had, I think, they went 0 for 4 as well mm-hmm. and never really looked dangerous on it. They had a lot 0 for of, 5. Yeah, 0 for 5. Tons of puck control. Not sure it ever led to a, a scoring chance. No. Um, which is, you know, a recurring theme. And, you know, it was, it was good, but it was funny to see 
the Red Wings have this like week and a half break, play one game, and then the next morning, Lalone literally changes the power play units the next morning just because it was that noticeably bad. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, both the Red Wings goals were manufactured, talented goals. You know, you talked about the the vintage Bertuzzi, Raymond Larkin goal. Oh man, that the play mo the, the everything leading up to the Joe Valeno goal. Uh, Pew Suter has won yeah. himself another month of me being a massive Pew Suter apologist. Yeah, two huge defensive plays against Connor McDavid on the penalty kill leads to a turnover. Sider carries the puck up the ice. I actually got mad at Sider because it looked like he had a lane where he could have maybe pressured a bit more, but he stopped up the blue line. And this is why I'm an idiot because he made a beautiful pass, <laughs> waited up just for Valeno to get into the zone, made a beautiful no look pass to him, and he walked in and scored. Just yeah. Phenomenal goal with eight seconds left in the period while trailing by two. The exact type of goal that, you know, a team in that position needs to be able to come out and rally in the third period and, you know, tie the game. I mean, they're still the Red Wings, so that didn't happen, but it was it was what they needed in order for that to happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then really awful penalty call that led to Edmonton's power play goal in the third period, which was you know, not the difference in the game, but very irritating nonetheless. I didn't have a problem with it. I really didn't. I like I get with the standards that were set the rest of the game. Yeah, I think the standards of that game, like first of all, let, let's let's call that game, Brad. You and I were joking out at the top of the show, Brad, but that game was chippy. It was every whistle, there was extracurriculars. Um, you know, Bertuzzi was thrown to the ice by Darnell Nurse at like just before the McDavid call, which was weird because you could say, yeah, in the context of a game where everyone has thrown glove punches and uh, face washes and hacking people after the whistle, whatever, you can understand why Nurse wasn't penalized, but you're going to let something soft like that go. They're different. It's apples to oranges. One is in play. One, you know, broke up what could have been potentially a two-on-one. Like that's smart interference by Rasmussen. Uh, but it just felt like a different set of rules by the ref. Personally, though, like uh, I'm trying to look at this objectively, even though McDavid sold it, I know McDavid has to sell things. Otherwise, he'll, like the, the tax is almost against him. Yeah, the NHL is not the NBA. No. So I, I, I don't have a problem with that interference call. It did set a weird standard, though. I agree. I, I felt yeah. the standard wasn't consistent, but I can also see, like if I asked that ref after the game, he'll say, well, if I'm going to penalize everyone who's throwing glove punches after the whistle, then, you know, it would have been a five, four on three every shift. But you have to call it the late game interference where you stop the best player on the planet from jumping into a two on one or three on two or whatever. I can understand it. It felt weird. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to stop the scuffles, you start pulling one at a time until they stop, which, you know, I think they tried once but did not try consistently. I mean, I don't mind it. A bit of an intensity uh, in the game is fine. And, you know, I saw a lot of people saying the Wings lost this game because they weren't tough. Um, that's what you pulled from that game. I don't know what to say to you because that clearly wasn't the issue because the Red Wings were the aggressors after the whistle more often than the Oilers were. So, uh, except in the occasions where Evander Kane was on the ice because Evander Kane was being Evander Kane. Yeah, but like, which if you're the Red Wings, you have two options: ignore them or fight them. The Red Wings did. The Red Wings dished out everything the the yeah, Oilers gave yeah. to them, and and I had no problem with the scrums in that game. I felt yeah. even the way they called them, they they I, I think they took an extra guy a couple times actually, and I didn't mind that. I know they called. They took Kane on the one. I remember that. 
Or they use the initial penalty as the extra guy. What they always yeah. made sure there was a, an imbalance at least somewhat. But yeah, I I don't think the Red Wings. I think the Red Wings were as tough as they could be. It's not going to put four more goals on the yeah, board. Yeah, I know. Though. I know. Evander Kane had that quote after the game, but like, such a stupid quote because yeah, man, they weren't backing down from you, but you didn't drop your gloves either. The Oilers weren't exactly getting into these scrums and shedding no, them. No, This was two teams staring at each other, daring each other to fight, and nobody did. It, it was a complete net neutral. The only time, because Hironic is fiery, right? Hironic actually, I like I was small growing up playing hockey, like, and I know I'm not a big guy now, but I was, I weighed like a buck 15. That never stopped me from getting into scrums, but if you're small, and you'll know this, Brad. Like, I'm not trying to make fun of you. You'll genuinely know. You'll grab a guy and you'll realize when you're in a mismatch and when you have to stop. And there was a moment where Heronic, was it Costin he was going with? And Co- so whoever the oiler was was looking at him like, do you want to do this? Like, <laughs> if you want to go, we can. But I, I don't really don't think you want to. And you could see Heronic just go, yeah, that's where this ends. And they just let go of each other and they skate away. And th- like, But that's the extent of it. That's just what hockey scrums are like. Anyhow. It was a heated game. The Red Wings and the Oilers play again in a week on February 15th. I'm excited because those guys all of a sudden hate each other. You, it makes you wish you had a seven-game series because it actually would be a bloodbath. No, there it wouldn't be. They don't play in the same division. <laughs> I love... We're going to get... When when Evan's back, we're going to get to the playoff format argument because that is one of the, the... My favorite hills to die on in terms of uh, the, the playoff changes the NHL needs to be. Uh, needs to make. Anyhow, if they're not going to listen to Sidney Crosby around, they're not going to listen to you. Hate to break it to you, man. Rude, but okay. Um, we saw the Red Wings, like you mentioned, Brad. Yeah, it's not a great game. It's it's pretty much that was a Red Wings on paper. That's how it's going to play out as long as they don't have that elite score. Uh, the team quotes after acknowledged as much. It's not rocket science at this point. Uh, we're not going to dive all the way into that this time. Let's talk about players like, I look at Bertuzzi and Sherratt. You know, who have been the focus of a lot of attention, positive and negative this year. A lot of it negative, actually. Yeah, I was like, what, positive? What? Well, where? when? I must have missed those conversations. For both of those players, this was a game where you saw almost equal parts of that's why they are on this team. And God, why? Like, just that's the part that kills you. With Bertuzzi, like, to start the game, he had the goal. He was setting up some great plays. Like, he looked offensively in tune, wasn't behind a step. You can tell he's shaken off a lot of rust, was meshing well, meshing well with uh, Larkin and Raymond. Did you see the part where for a brief moment he dribbled the puck? Yes. Oh, that was cool as hell. Yeah, it was great. Remember how we've always talked about how he's like maybe the best player on the Red Wings, if not the league, with bad pucks? I saw him do that and I'm like, there he is. Yeah, it was he's awesome. Back. So I, I, I love that. And then he had like the the turnover that led to what was the empty net goal, yeah, right? Like just a, a completely needless, don't even know what he was attempting there giveaway. And then with Sherratt, it's like, yeah, there was a one goal with him and where he just misses his assignment and he was like standing him, weirdly in front, covering no one in front. Him and, and Hironic yeah. missed their assignments on that play. I, I can't process what either of them were attempting on that play that just led to an Euler, you know. Being wide open in the slot with a puck, yeah. not not something you want. And then when you consider the way everything went down and the Red Wings not getting bullied, but it was a physical game. Think of a version of the Red Wings where they didn't have a bench rot to go in and, and tussle in there. Like the him and Perron and those guys, they're, believe it or not, that's important to have. Otherwise, you'll just, we saw it last year, what happens when you get physically dominated. Uh, and it was just like a, the good and bad of what the Red Wings have to work with this year was completely on display last night. 
Yeah, there was one play too where uh, Sherratt was standing in the slot in the Red Wings zone and there was an Oiler behind him. And I caught myself all about to actually yell at the TV, Ben, behind you. <laughs> he would have heard you. Yeah, he... And it, <laughs> yeah, there's uh, so many microcosms. I'm trying really hard to avoid what I normally do with players in Ben Sherratt's situation where... I feel like I'm unnecessarily harsh on them. So I watch their game closer to like, you know, pick out the good things so that I I can yeah. be fair to them. But then the more I watch, the more I, I it reaffirms my position. Mm. And I, I already see that happening with Ben and I'm I'm trying so hard to not be that guy. What we have to what what we have to understand at this point is the Red Wing season is going to play out now as it's going to. Like we're probably not going to see monumental shifts in storylines unless Things happen at the trade deadline, um, whatever else, really. I don't think it's at all bad to criticize Ben Sherratt if he's playing poorly. And I think a lot of the times he has. We t- oh, with Ben Sherratt, though, you have to be careful how you word that. Playing poorly to league standards or playing poorly to his standards are two very different things. That's fair, yeah. But that that's, I agree, but at the same time, no, you're right. You are right. But he was brought in for a reason. And we talked about guys who immediately have expectations based on their contract. And he was one of them. Cop gets a little bit of a pass depending on, uh, like with the core surgery and everything. And he acknowledged actually that he's feeling better and better as the time goes on. So that's obviously a real thing. But with, with Sherrod. Cause it's, if you're holding him to league standards and the, and quite honestly, the standards of his contract. I don't know if he's had a game where he's lived up to him yet, and I don't know if he will. Oh, I think he's had a game. He's a had a couple games, sure, but like, if we have to isolate him, it's going to be a real long year. So I'm trying to hold Sherratt to Sherratt standards. Who is he as a player? What should he be? What is he doing out there? Was it a good or a bad game by Sherratt standards? Because that, like, it's the only way I can be fair to him, so that's the standard I'm going to hold him to because... Honestly, for the entirety of this contract, if you just focus on him versus his contract, you're going to come away angry 95% of the time. That's not good for him. That's not good for you. Let's not do that. We understand the burden his contract is going to be for the next three years. Okay, fine. That's Eiserman's job to work around it. It's his mistake. Okay. Did Sherrod have a good game by Sherrod standards last night? It was about average. That's that last night's game is about what I expect from him. Like you said, there was the good, there was the bad, there was the entertaining because he's never boring. So, yeah, he he was definitely Ben Sherratt. Yeah, so you take it for what it is, and you know it's hard to criticize a guy for playing up to his standards. Well, the Red Wings upcoming have the Calgary Flames on Thursday, and then the Vancouver Canucks on Saturday, both at home uh, again. Uh, the Canucks at noon, that's the game where we're auctioning off the tickets as part of the package. Uh, so if you want to go to that game, you can. It'll be cheap. Let's talk about Philip Zadina. So was kept in the lineup, uh, was uh, not waived in favor uh, of Adam Ernie. Adam Ernie was actually the one who was waived and is down in Grand Rapids. So Philip Zadina in the lineup will come in at some point, but it wasn't for the Oilers game and it doesn't look like there's any certainty yet that he'll come in for the Flames game. He was the 13th forward. Um, essentially, unless something changes either in terms of injury or practice, really, that's how it's going to happen. People don't often give a lot of credit to that. The way you practice does impact whether or not you're in the lineup. Not if you're Dylan Larkin or Lucas Raymond. Like If Lucas Raymond goes out and has a bummer practice, he's still going to slot into the lineup. 
But if you're third, fourth line guy and there's other guys competing for your spot at all times, yeah, the way you practice is the way you play and, and coaches subscribe to that. So uh, I'm sure they're looking for something a little bit more from Zadina before he finds that spot, but he didn't slot in yet for the Oilers game. You have to imagine sometime over the next two games he'll get in there though, right? Yeah, I mean... The Red Wings didn't win last night, and it wasn't a shining game, but it was hard to single out guys to criticize last night. Like, it was a pretty balanced effort. So, you know, if you're not going to pull anybody to the lineup for Zadina, I, I understand it. But, yeah, he's going to have to get in at some point. Um, so they're probably just waiting for, a, you know, a, a Sunfist or a Suter or a, you know, heaven forbid, Bergeron to have a bad game to have the justification to put Zadina in. Because it, it sets a bad precedence if a guy plays a good game and you pull him out of the lineup. So you have to be very careful with that, no matter how badly you want to get Zadina in the lineup, no matter how much they should get Zadina in the lineup, you have to manage that room very carefully. Because, you know, if you pull Suter out of the lineup for Zadina tomorrow after what he did to McDavid, that's an awful precedence to set. The guys in the room notice that and they'll be mad. Yeah. They'll be mad for Suter. Suter, oh, and like... Just to, to really give detail to what Brad's talking about, Suter knocked the puck off the best player on the planet's stick, pushed the puck out of the zone, made them have to re-enter uh, with, some, uh, with an assist from, I think, Sonny. I think it was Sunquist who had the poke check on uh, McDavid, slash I think impeded with him a little bit. And then Suter won the puck battle, laid out McDavid, and got the puck to Cider. Or the, the, the puck I think he got it to Wallman, yeah, yeah. and then it went to Cider, and then yeah. So you're not sitting suitor after that. Had a good game. Uh, Helene St. James made the point that uh, Sun- Sunquist is on the power play. So Kubelik then would be the odd man out. Uh, I wouldn't say he had a bad game. No. He did shit all on the power play, but there was some good moments for him. I really liked his forecheck, which isn't uh, usually a strength for him. So, you know, again, guys notice. It's so easy to ignore the little things like that from a fan and honestly as a fan perspective you shouldn't notice that who gives a shit yeah but the players in the room notice stuff like that they notice every little thing on the ice because for the 60 minutes of a game they're focusing on nothing but the game so you know the little things go a long way in the room and you really as a coach have to manage that carefully you know it's easy to note when a bad player when not when a bad player when a player has a bad game yeah. If you notice it, the team noticed it, the coach noticed it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's talk about Jacob Verana. Uh, not too much on this, but just because ever since the Verana news came out, we started to report like a little bit on it just to kind of tell people, hey, this isn't, this is unfolded to be not a typical situation. Don't expect Verana back anytime soon. Um, a lot of people were confused and we've gotten a lot of notes and questions about um, and I'm sorry, I haven't gotten to answering all of them if you've been in DMs, uh, but to say like what's changed and why all of a sudden are we not considering the, the uh, probably the best pure goal scorer on the Red Wings back in the lineup anytime soon. It's again, a complicated situation. There was a, a report that went out or a tweet that went out, a couple of them actually, uh, over the past couple of days that said, uh, you know, something to the effect of people have been hearing that Verona has played his last game with the Red Wings. Uh, and don't be surprised if the end result is, you know, him being traded or bought out. And that caused a little bit of, you know, a reaction. Uh, but the thing is, I, I have a little bit to say about the certainty with which that was presented, which I think I, I, I don't necessarily agree with. But all in all, it's not new, right? Like, this is just the way it's unfolded. Like, this is a guy that got waived yeah. by Steve Eisman. 
Like, he waived someone who is considered one of the best five-on-five goal-scoring talents in the NHL right now. You cut you couple that with everything that's happened since Verona has joined the team, how much time he's missed, and then the unknowns and emphasis on unknowns of what's gone on with him entering the player assistance program and coming out and the team's concerns with his uh, level of play and conditioning. Like there is a lot feeding into this. This isn't new. Where I do struggle is to say anything with certainty. We've heard a lot, like Brad, you and I have heard a lot from people who we would consider reputable sources, but nothing concrete enough to report, you know, definitely Verona is, has played his last game with the Red Wings or, um, you know, absolutely it's going to end in a trade or absolutely it's going to end in a buyout. We've said from the start or not from the start as of like, once this is start to become a little bit more known, like it's going to be a long path back and it's narrow and it's not guaranteed. Um, but I think it's fluid. Like it's still changing. I don't think anyone has made up their minds yet. Uh, I think it's a very complicated, delicate situation. And I just, I can't sit here and say, yeah, this is absolutely what's going to happen. There's one way to look at this and it's pretty much the only way to look at this. They waived him. You don't waive someone unless you are very comfortable that player going to another team. They waived him. Yep. Which makes me believe, yeah, the team is probably done with him. Is there a plan right now for Jacob Verona to come back to the Detroit Red Wings? Again, given that they waived him, the indication is probably not. Goals have a hell of a way of changing people's mind. So if Verona's heater in the AHL continues for another few weeks and the Red Wings continue to have struggle scoring, yeah, there could be a path back here. I'd say it's unlikely given the information, but if player A keeps scoring and team A can't score a goal, maybe there's a breaking point where someone changes their mind. All this coupled with, I'll add and agree or not, I think whatever's going on in the background also has to be remedied, whatever that is. The depth to which that's a problem, Steve Eisman knows, whoever else in Red Wings administration knows, Jacob Vrana knows. None of them have exactly gone on public record about it, right? So the news is there's no news. Exactly. Nothing new has happened. I know there's a one, I mean, we record twice a week. We would love if there was absolute concrete, you know, news every single time when we can come out here, we'd post the clips, we'd promote everywhere. Like, yeah, we'd love to break it, but it's, the situation is as it's been, it's, it's interesting and absolutely an enigma and we all want to know what's going on and we're going to, you know, fine tooth comb everything we see and hear. Uh, but the reality is it, it the, the situation is as it's been. On that note, Dylan Larkin contract, same thing. Situation is as it's been. No updates. <laughs> can you tell the, can you tell we're ready for the trade deadline so the, the news cycle could uh, get refreshed a little bit? Very ready for the trade deadline. <laughs> okay. Uh, always a bummer conversation, uh, you know, because again, all of this is qualified by the ever-present, no matter what we hope, uh, Jacob, the person, is doing well. Um, let's transition to something a little bit more positive and a very kind of uh, fortunate, one of the really good stories out of the Red Wings this year. Let's stop talking about Jake. Now let's talk about Jake. Oh, that's good. That's a much better transition than I had. Thank you. Jake Wallman has 
we were, uh, Max and I were on uh, the hockey PDO cast with uh, Dmitry Filipovich today. And, you know, we talked about Jake Wellman has, since he has come back from shul- shoulder surgery, grabbed, you know, the bull by the horns and really seized his opportunity with the Red Wings to the tune of he is now a standout first pairing defenseman on these Detroit Red Wings, where analytically him and Sider have been one of the best pairs in the league over the last little while. This guy has a future on the Red Wings if both he and the team want it, and you have to imagine the team wants it. So what does that look like? That looks like what Jake Wallman, whatever Jake Wallman wants it to look like. Because the the part of this story that is unfortunate and not a positive, but needs to be looked at because it's very relevant, he's a pending UFA. Mm-hmm. So if Jake Wallman does not want to be a Red Wing next year, he is not going to be a Red Wing next year. Because he will have... He will be in demand on the market this summer. So Iserman's got his work cut out for him with Larkin. Now he's got his work cut out with Wallman because I would classify both these players now as must signs. Now, what that contract looks like for Jake Wallman before it gets to the point of unreasonable, I don't know because this is a not completely unique situation, but a not often seen situation where, you know, 25-year-old player bursts out, comes out of his shell. Oh, he'll be 27 in a couple weeks. Sorry, 27. So a 26-year-old player now bursts out and has his coming out party. In the year, he's a pending UFA. So could there be a bridge contract here, you know, in that three-year term? Maybe. Could there be a long-term contract here? Maybe. Could there be no contract at all? Maybe. Um, I, th- I think it was Prashanth brought up a couple comparable contracts um, in one of our group chats today that were around the four by three range. Yeah. So that, that feels like probably the most likely. Honestly, you know, we've talked about how you got to take some gambles on contracts in order to maximize value. If Wallman's willing to resign in Detroit, I personally would like to see an extra year or two on top of that, just just to really maximize his value. Um, but again, Wallman, like you said, is almost twenty seven. This is probably the best contract he's ever going to get, unless he takes a short term deal. In general, you give players who you think are good but have not had the sample size or have been underappreciated, or haven't had the opportunity to display how good they are, or you think they're going to get better, you give them as long of a contract as you can because you're locking them in for a cheaper price. You don't do that for middle-of-the-lineup guys, Ken Holland, uh, because there's a really good chance you've seen their peak. For example, think if... you know Andrew Cup. Sorry, I had to. Is his price that bad, though? Or is his term what you're concerned about? The term. That's one thing. I'm willing to give... Like this, oh, this, what I'm talking about applies more to, you know, the Raymond and Raymond's insiders of the world. And we're going to be talking about that in, you know, six ish months or however many months here, but when they're eligible for extension, uh, you lock those guys up for as long as you can in advance, uh, knowing that they're going to be much better players. Uh, the player that everyone in the hockey, hockey world has been most wrong about most recently, Tage Thompson, that's what Buffalo did. And they have now a phenomenal player at a phenomenal deal. Wallman is almost an analog to that. It's weird that he's going to be 27. You don't really think of that with 27-year-olds, but you think of the roster he was on in St. Louis where he was kind of buried down in that very strong defensive core. Uh, his shoulder surgery, his uh, the, all these things that have limited his opportunity. He's emerged now in Detroit, and if you, like, you're watching him play, you know it's not a fluke. 
Like he's not just been incredibly lucky. It's not been like someone has fired the puck off his ass and it's bounced in. It's not been Sider carrying that pairing. No, he's been really good. I'm very happy to give Jake Wallman four or five years here. I would guess four by four and that's completely, you know, I'm just guessing. I don't know if that's actually fair value. If I said that to Jake Wallman, he might go, buddy, I'm on the first pairing with Mo Sider. I deserve five and a half. I don't know. Uh, but if the Red Wings want to give him four or five years, I'm all for that because I think Jake Wallman is a great player and that solidifies at least one part of the left side of your lineup where there's no guarantees yet until Johansson, until Edvinson, until others get there. You look at almost all the great contracts in the NHL, they all had risk when they were signed. And those risks usually fall into three categories. Injury history. You know the guy's good. You're now just paying you're now just banking that he'll stay healthy for once. Um underperformance. You know the player's better than they've shown and you're taking a gamble on it. Or inexperience. The player showing that they're very good, but they do not have a long track record. So you're gonna lock them up and hope that they get good. And that's the most common one when you look at like Jack Hughes, Tage Thompson, Nathan McKinnon's really good contract. They were all pretty inexperienced when they were signed. You saw the the peak. You, you were pretty sure they weren't going to be much better than that. Yeah. But they only had like a year or so at that level, if they had even got to it at all. That's what Wallman is now. So there is an opportunity here to get a quote unquote value contract because we've seen the best of what Jake Wallman likely will be, but... He's inexperienced. He does not have a long track record. So he will not get he will not get paid like he has a long track record. So there here's your opportunity for value. Whatever term you want to have on that. Um so I, I'm I big fan of Jake Wallman. I I see opportunity here and I I would hope I, I know Eiserman does as well. So I'm just hoping that him and Wallman can get something done. It's the kind of thing that you need to happen um, because otherwise you're looking at, like if Wallman didn't exist, who are you looking at as the Red Wings' first pair left side defenseman at the cider next year? Ben Chirot. Ben Chirot, which it's... The Unironically, Ben Chirot, because Ole Mott is also a pending UFA. And Ben Chirot doesn't work out with Mo Sider, at least right now. I don't know if they try it again in the future and something changes, but as Ben Chirot plays and as Mo Sider plays, those two aren't compatible. We've seen that for an extended period of time. So I think even not even uh, Ben Chirot, I think you're you're looking at you know Edvinson or Johansson and you hope that they can weather the storm, which is a terrible strategy. You want to avoid that at all costs. Mo Sider did that in his rookie year, but Mo Sider was an aberration. He won the Calder Trophy. He was the best rookie in the NHL. You you can't count on that consistently. That almost never happens. If you, you can't count on that at all. If you, if you, it's a bonus when if, it happens. Yeah. If you, the listener, never see that again, as long as you cut, watch and follow the Red Wings, statistically that tracks. So, yeah, Jake Wallman coming in and be, being able to hold his own at the very least on that left side with Mo Sider has, think of that with like Yontin Berggren level. This has been a really, really good outcome that the Red Wings needed on their lineup impact. Yeah, Jonathan Berggren is exceeding expectations this year and having a very good rookie season. He is not going to be a thought in the Calder voting process this no, year. No, Uh Just to kind of uh, articulate how well Wallman is doing, uh, these are from our good friend Prashanth Iyer, our resident uh, stats expert. 
Uh, top D pairs at suppressing five on five quality chances against expected goals against per 60. Uh, minimum 200 minutes played. This is from Evolving Hockey. Wallman Insider rank fifth at 1.99, actually tied with uh, Moser Valimaki out of Arizona. So that is their top five in the NHL in terms of um, a pair. And it, the top five defensemen in expected goals above replacement per 60, so XGAR per 60. Guess where Jake Wallman ranks? Second. Second. Right behind Adam Fox, just ahead of Eric Carlson. Again, these, these uh, you know, isolated stats don't indicate, you know, who's the best defenseman in the league or who's going to win the Norris Trophy or anything like that, but you're doing something right if you're popping up in there. All right. Uh, that's been some Red Wings conversation. Uh, we'll see what's to come if Zadina slots in the lineup, uh, if anything happens in terms of extensions before the deadline, uh, and if there's any other news, actual real material news on Verona or Larkin, we'll bring that to you as it comes. Uh, for now, let's get into some NHL news. Uh, <laughs> when else has there been a an individual who has gone one day from being the designated survivor on the night of the State of the Union to the impending uh, incoming head of the NHLPA? Isn't that funny? There's a TV show about him. Yeah. Uh, surprisingly decent show that went off the rails a little bit, came back strong, but got canceled before it could, I think, close out its course. I think I forget where I gave up on it. I watched the first season. It was one of those ones where the initial concept was really, really good, but they yeah. kind of went through that concept a little too quickly. Almost should have been a two-season show. Yeah, and then it just kind of, and yeah. then I just never bothered getting back into it. So uh, the NHL uh, PA is tapping uh, technically current U.S. Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, uh, as the new head of the NHL uh, Players Association. So he is the current Secretary of Labor. Um, when I meant by designated survivor, the long and short of it is at the State of the Union, there are measures uh, to prevent in case anything happens. There is someone in government designated to not attend, so government can continue. That was Marty Walsh uh, because he is expected to leave his cabinet position uh, in the U.S. government and join the NHLPA um, as their new head. He has a big, he used to be the mayor of Boston. He has uh, led labor unions. Um, he was previously president of the Laborers International Union of North America uh, and head of the Building, Construction, and Trades Council in Boston. Uh, shout out to Daily Faceoff for a great piece on this. But they, the NHLPA very obviously moved in a direction here of getting someone to protect them from getting caved in the next CBA with the owners. By all rights, it seems like the Players Association does value someone who knows hockey and can sell that side of the game, but they moved in a direction where they know there are going to be big things on the board. You see people making noise already. Uh, you know, Alan Walsh is always talking about the, the hard cap, and I personally am in favor of the cap, but, you know, that's a priority for players and agents, at least to make, keep it in the conversation. They're talking about the the cap not being proportional uh, to the revenue generated by the NHL. Uh, they talk about what's considered hockey-related revenue, what cuts do the, the players get, et cetera, et cetera. Things like the Olympics, things like uh, final decision on your on health decisions. Think of Jack Eichel. Those are all very important things that the Players Association feels like they've been schooled on the last couple CBAs. So bringing in someone with a uh, labor union background, that it's a pretty strong signal. Yeah, it's a very, very smart move by the NHLPA to get someone who who can really, really nail what they need. 
Um, this is how I know the NHL has broken me. <laughs> I saw this hire, went, wow, good for the NHLPA. Immediately went to see when the next CBA ended, so I knew when the next lockout was coming. It's, I, the pandemic was almost, like silver lining, it was almost good. Like it lit a fire under the owners and the players' asses to figure this out the last time they did it with the extension and everything just to make sure that they didn't lose more than they were already going to lose because they lost a lot through the pandemic, which, I mean, not going to cry for millionaires and billionaires. Everyone lost a lot during the pandemic. Uh, the economy absolutely hurt, um, but that was a catalyst for them to boot the can down the road by a few years. But yeah, there's, I think there's going to be a lot of battlefronts and unless they start making a lot of headway really early, um, I can see both Marty Walsh and I can see um, Gary Bettman and the owners really kind of testing each other, throw a pot shot, throw a right jab in the, in the media, whatever it might be. Um, you got to feel out your opponent before you, you come to the negotiating table in good faith. And that all is poised for the fans, unfortunately, with potentially a lockout. Anyhow, uh, curious to see how that unfolds. Whenever you bring in a non-hockey guy, it's uh, he has a lot of work to do. Uh, Elliot Friedman mentioned that he's you know he's got to meet the rank and file. He has to understand the hockey side of things. He's a uh, apparently noted huge, huge, huge Boston Bruins fan. Jeremy uh, Jacobs apparently was a big donor to his mayoral uh, candidacy. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I was going to get to here. That's the big bugaboo because. <laughs> Bit of a conflict of interest, eh? For those who don't know, Jeremy Jacobs and the Jacob fa- Jacobs family, they own the Boston Bruins. Uh, the one who swings the hammer, the one who, you know, had the proverbial gavel uh, when you think of who heads up all the owners and the commissioner side of things, Jacobs. There's, there's a reason why every time there's a lockout or a labor dispute, he is at the head of it or the family's at the head of it. Uh, they are seen as the the linchpin, the the head honcho on the owner side of things. So, if you had to think of who is the biggest adversary for the head of the NHLPA, yeah, you might say Gary Bettman, and that's probably right. Or he's at least the figurehead of the biggest adversary, which is Jeremy Jacobs and the Jacobs family. Uh, so that's complicated. What I will say though is, there's no way it would have been such a unanimous vote from the players who are very experienced and are very aware of what you know, Jeremy Jacobs is to the owners. That would have been the first thing asked of him before in, in the vetting process before they voted yes on, on Marty Walsh coming in. Right. You would think so, um, is what I will leave that at. <laughs> we'll see. It gets into politics, uh, which we are not ever keen on discussing, but, um, he has a tall task ahead of him. The labor dispute is going to be interesting. I I will say though, and maybe I'm naive here, you know me ever the optimist. I don't think it's necessarily destined to be this contentious, bloody dispute. I I see a path forward where the owners and the players can reach a lot of common, like they're not so far apart on things. Like they've aligned way better they have now than when I think about 2004. Like they're not worlds apart like they used to be when we were growing up. You're nodding, you're about to call me naive and an idiot. No, I just uh, discovered a fascinating fact about people as they age. We get softer? 
No, that that hard line from there's still some optimism left to absolute pessimist. Everybody on the earth sucks. Falls somewhere between twenty nine and thirty five. <laughs> that that's what I just learned. Uh, I don't know exactly where it could be thirty thirty. Evan might be the good lit, uh, litmus test. It's unfortunate he's not here. I think he's generally on my side, so we're probably looking towards early thirties. We're, uh, cause it's adorable. You think that this one's going to go well. The, the NHLPA just hired a guy who is probably very, very good at his job. And he's going to make a lot of demands for the NHL players association. And he's, he's probably going to do a very good job of getting them what they want. Um, and we all know how much Gary Bettman and the owners love to concede on things. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure this will go well. We're coming up on eight years together. Yeah. I know it's Monday. Yeah. And, um, I have to say, I do appreciate you and Evan because better than anyone else in this, on this planet. And I'm sorry, Mel, who, who listens often, these guys have, <laughs> I spent more time with you for longer, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I like when we can call each other out when we're being naive little babies sometimes. <laughs> uh, some yeah. other, maybe I'm normally a very pessimistic person, which by the way, I made that joke, uh, to Jay. Uh, last week he's like, oh no, I know, I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've only known him for three weeks, and he's like, yeah, no, I know. This isn't new information. Jay's a big supporter of the pod, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, I know, and I appreciated that uh, immediately about him. And I might be a little on tilt this week with my pessimism, as with what I've been going through that you know well about. So uh, your your naive naivety, normally that might squeeze past me not today yeah absolutely not <laughs> uh so it's not my news to share brad so i'm going to share it anyways brad got a house yay now i get to go through the mortgage process congratulations buddy thank you even though i had my pre-approval a while ago yeah you know oh oh my god yeah not, oh my god not the same but I, I told you guys why i was grumpy last weekend which was i was making i was sending payments for the wedding and you know it's coming and you have the money yeah, set aside yeah, for it. It just, absolutely. But every time a payment goes out, you're like, mm, wow. This whole process is the most infuriating thing I've ever dealt with. You'll make it through, buddy. You have oh. our eight-year anniversary to cheer you up. I can't believe I've made it to eight years without killing you two. And I'm on tilt this week. So we might, there's a chance we still don't make it to eight years. We, we're I, in this far. Let's make it to the decade before we do any, before you start, you know cutting off any, uh, any hosts. If you and Evan feel like you can do this between you two, I believe you, but just let us reach <laughs> 10 years before you off me, you know? Yeah. Anyhow, uh, some other quick NHL notes. You catch that Rangers, uh, flames game. Oh, Talk yeah. about a bloodbath. Oh yeah. That, that game was what Red Wings and Oilers fans thought that game was. That was what an actual bloodbath looks like. That was Old school rock'em sock'em hockey where I don't mind the fights that happened after the big hits because the big hits were huge and they were statements. Truba walked the line, which I'm that's the version of Truba that I actually love to watch because it is massive. And if you're a fan of the opposing team, it pisses you off. But he walked the line with those hits. Nazem Kadri got his helmet popped off. Uh, and then when asked about it after the game, was Naz was like, Yep, yeah, well, clean hit, took it like a man, walked up, brushed it off, you move on. Fights, guys taking on guys who are way bigger than them, uh, uh, you know, defending their teammates. Like that was an old school hockey game. I would kill to have a, a seven game series between those two. Who, who was it 
was it Sammy Blay that like blew yes. up Milan Lucic? Yes. Like it was the type of game where guys were taking runs at Lucic. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of the games of the year. Oh yeah, and it like it ended in overtime. It was just it was crazy. Yeah. It was oh, phenomenal game. But again, they're in different divisions, not a not a there actually was no intensity there. There was no intensity. Yeah, they're in different divisions. Oh god, dude, drives me nuts. We'll get into the playoff conversation in the future. Like we need time for that one. We we need it back. If Sid is saying it, you know, a lot of no, people send the meme. But there's only remember when Colorado and Detroit were in the same division and that huge rivalry bloomed. Remember that? I remember that. I will say a lot of people have been saying uh, this is why Detroit should be back in the West, and it's like, no, please. I value my sleep. I can't. Yeah, absolutely not. Please, no. My favorite part about this is now too is I always use the Colorado Detroit example. When the Pittsburgh Washington one started, they were not in the same divisions. The Washington was still in the Southeast. Yeah, that was. Uh, other NHL notes, anything else that we want to tackle before the end? Oh, did you see Luongo's, uh, custom pads for the all-star game? Filth. I mean, every set of pads for the all-star game was just pure filth. They were all great, but where there was like a little bit of striping for each team. Did you see like the small, like one blue and orange stripe for the Islanders on the top right corner? Yep. He had the C from when he was captain. So good. I miss Lou so much. One of my favorite goalies of all time. Probably favorite goalie outside of Dominic Hasek. Oh, yeah. And there's nobody that can hate Roberto Luongo. How can you hate Roberto Luongo? you couldn't. Speaking of all-star games, um, the NHL's talked... Can we not? The NHL's talked about this for a while. What do they struggle with the all-star games? Getting guys to go. So they are probably going to veer towards committing to only major markets, Toronto, New York, that kind of thing, where, you know, players' families would like to vacation to, or somewhere warm. Florida, Tampa, somewhere in California, et cetera. Sucks if you're a fan of a team like Detroit where you know, yeah, with some changes to like infrastructure around the arena, which have been planned for some time, uh, they could absolutely support an all-star game. I think about when the Super Bowl was in Detroit. It was so long ago, but I still remember all of it vividly. It was awesome. Uh, That's the kind of thing where you're like, yeah, you understand why they do it, and that makes sense. So it's going to be in Toronto next year, and I would imagine you're just going to get a cycle of like Vegas, Florida, et cetera, after that. I can't say I, I blame them. Anyhow, it's the All-Star game. Whatever. I'd rather have a draft. Draft would be fun, actually. Draft would be super fun. Especially, too, because like downtown Detroit, middle of uh, June, July. Yeah. Hell yeah. Fire me up. Beautiful. All right, folks, we're going to jump into Overtime, which is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash Podcast. If you want to join the so-called Dub Dub Club, you get access to our Patreon-exclusive Overtime episodes, which record right after the main episode. So any questions and comments that aren't answered on air during the main show, uh, we answer during the uh, bonus show, and we let loose, have some fun. Uh, I let Brad and Evan swear a bit more and uh, just kind of shoot the breeze. So that's good fun. You get access to the Winged Wheel Podcast Discord, which is a phenomenal community. Uh, as well, you get uh, automatically entered into any giveaways that we do. We're giving away two tickets to every Red Wings home game this season, the majority of them going to Patreon uh, supporters directly. So patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. Jake Nagy says, Steve Eiserman has been my hero since I was a child, and I completely believe he's the right man to lead us to the rebuild. However, I'm curious if there's been a moment since he became GM where you felt any lower than you do right now about the Iser plan. Between the Sherratt deal, Verona situation, Larkin negotiations, etc., 
This is the first season I've had any legit critiques of his decisions and curious if you and others feel the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's not that I've given up on the plan or I think the plan's been bad and wrong and, and I'm not, I, I still very much see what he's doing and I still very much agree with what he's doing. But yeah, this was supposed to be the the step forward year. They've been bad with the context of a couple unforeseen circumstances, i.e. Bertuzzi, Verona, did not help. The cop and Chirac contracts, uh, one looks bad, one looks like it might be okay. That And those are the two biggest contracts he signed in the offseason. That is not reassuring. He's got 10 mil of contracts he signed in Grand Rapids right now. Yep. Which, yeah, like no GM's perfect. And this seems to be the perfect storm of all his poor decisions kind of coming to a head at, at the same time, which is unfortunate. I still stand by the Ned decision. Like that wasn't a bad trade. We all said he was no guarantee, but it, it, Hey, if it works out great, if it doesn't work out, it's a very low risk. Didn't work out. The Red Wings really aren't out anything. A third round pick, whoop-de-doo. You yeah. know, the Verona one, Mantha's not exactly lighting it up in Washington. And who are the, they get out of the picks from that trade? Was it Buchelnikov and Kosa? Yeah. Okay. Still, you still do that trade over again if you know what Mantha's doing in Washington. Yeah, the Adam Ernie one, okay. That pro- contract probably shouldn't have been signed, but it's cheap. Who cares? It's so much of this is, yeah, he hasn't, there's still holes in this roster and it makes you think, why did you pay that much to move in the off season? And we said it when he was, ha- when it ha- was happening in the off season, you have to pick a direction. You have to either tank hard this year for Bedard or you have to add and, and put this team on the path to get a little bit better. The objective, non-emotional part of us that ha- didn't watch the last seven years of Red Wings hockey said, yeah, tank for Bedard because he is a generational talent and all, or has a chance to be. Um, and could save this franchise's rebuild in short order. But the part of us that just watched the Red Wings get absolutely blown up year after year after year after year after year to the point where they were an embarrassment at the bottom of the NHL. We're like, at some point you need to move. The draft lottery is not reliable statistically and historically for the Red Wings. So you don't, you can understand that winning doesn't come overnight and just adding good players doesn't mean you win. You have to start to build around your young core and you can't, raise them, so to speak, in a culture of losing. So that was the justification behind his decision. Uh, and the criticisms are fair. You're right, Brad. The cop one seems to be okay so far. Uh, could be good even. It could, you know, plateau here or get worse. The Sherat one so far, bad. It, not a great signing so far. Um, and you're right. That's nine collective years of term between the two of them. It's not what you want to see. All that said, though, like we talked about a lot of things that are little twitches of the needle. Like how much better is this team or how much worse is this team without the free agents that they signed? I don't think it's actually to the order of they're all of a sudden leading the Bedard lottery or, you know, uh, they're in the playoffs. It's not that big of a swing. I think there's significant portions of it, but I don't think we're seeing it materialize in their game. The part that has me down to go back to your question, Jake, the part that has me bummed out is what's happened with Bertuzzi and Verona this season. I've said it, the past, I've been saying it nonstop for the last month. You're probably sick of it, but like, I don't really, there, that was I, supposed to be 60 goals. Exactly. Eisenman can't conjure up an elite goal scorer out of nowhere. You need to get it through trade. You need to get it through drafting. You need to get it through free agency. Uh, 
You can't rely on the draft lottery slash that's out of your control. You're not, you decided you're not going to actively strip this team for parts to try to maximize Bedard. That like legitimately that's fine, but losing that amount of goals, that amount of offensive production, two of your four most important offensive players, like that ruined this season in terms of points on the board that ruined production to help your young players around him. And that ruined a, a shit ton of trade value. Like I'm talking multiple first round picks worth of trade value between those guys, if not more. And then with that, what can you do with that? You can use that to buy elite scoring talent. You can use that to fill out their holes in your roster. Like I'm not saying Eisenman is free of blame, but I'm saying it's absolutely not all his fault this year either. Just there's been so much that's gone wrong. Hindsight is 2020. He could have done things differently. Absolutely. But you changed Bertuzzi and Verano where they're playing 82 games, even at an average level of play. This is we're we're thinking a lot differently about the deadline. We're thinking a lot differently about the draft lottery. We're thinking a lot differently about everything. If I went through everything Eiserman's done in the rebuild, even the even the trades he's made that haven't panned out, like Regula for Perlini going back, where you we all understood the logic at the time. Nobody hated the trade at the time. It's just, hey, Perlini had some upside. It didn't work out. It happens. You have to take those swings. So I don't even get mad. If I look at everything he's done and I go, what two thing like what would I definitively not do? Like I don't like that was a bad move from the minute he made it. I come to one. Sherrod. Sherrod. Yeah. That was that was a mistake. That was a mistake the minute he signed it. And it's only proven to be a mistake since. I don't think the cop contract was good, but we were in the position of we who was the second line center? They didn't have one. You couldn't do Pew Suter. So I can at least understand the justification there. Were there better options available? Yes. Would I have preferred Dylan Strom instead, given what he signed for in Washington and how that's went since? Yes. We advocated for him, so this isn't revisionist history. He was very much on our radar, and that would have been a better play. But they he needed to sign someone. So yeah. the Nadelkovic, it was worth the gamble. Adam Ernie, not a great contract, but you needed bodies on the ice. Yeah, Regula might be a player, like, and by player, I mean six defensemen in Chicago. Who cares? It was yeah. worth the gamble. Jury's still out. I didn't love the trade up for Cosa at the time, but that still has huge payoff possibility. So, not saying that was bad. That's the one where if people really want to like hinge, is the Iser plan working out? Like, they should be, I think people should be dialing in on the Cosa trade. Yeah, the Sherratt deal is definitively bad. I didn't like the the trade up for Cosa at the time, and I think they picked the wrong goalie. And how it's played out since that has is looking like the case, but there's still a reality where Cosa is their starting goalie in a couple of years. It is the highest risk, highest yeah. reward movie. So he's if made. if it pans out, we all look like idiots. We all understood what he was doing. Yeah, I didn't even hate. I I generally don't advocate for trading up for goalie like or taking goalies in the first round. Period. I can hear Prashanth yelling in the distance. Oh, he yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Um, but if it's your second first round pick, cause they already had, was it, that was Edvinson that year. Okay, fine. That's the time to gamble. You already have a high end player in that round. Sure. Let's swing for a starting goalie. Again, I wouldn't have done it. I didn't love the move at the time and they didn't pick the goalie. I would have, I can still be proven very wrong on all of that. But yeah, if in three years, Kosa doesn't pan out, 
this is one of the moves I'm going to go, okay, this part of the Eisner plan failed. And I can, and we can say it's not revisionist history. We didn't like it at the time. So when you're looking at, I'll classify this as one and a half moves to this point. I don't think we need to hit the panic button. Yeah. So to answer the question, Jake, have things been more bleak than they are right now? No, I don't think so. But is it cause to tear everything down and say everything, everything since 2019 has been a mistake? No, no. I will say there has been more and more of a chorus of, hey, it is okay to make criticisms of your team's GM. And I mean, I think we've been saying that for quite some time that it's not just blindly everything is good. Uh, it's nuanced. There is legitimately no perfect GM in the league. Um, it is okay. All right. Another question here from Nick Boyd it says when players retire, announcers and stat cards often list all-star appearances as part of their accolades. Knowing how little the all-star game actually matters. Is there any merit left to how many times a player is, ex- is selected for it? Thanks. The all-star team at the end of the season is more means more. Yes. Yeah. So the, um, I, I forget how they phrase it differently, but yes, the all-star game is meaningless. Yeah, it really is. If there wasn't the one player per team rule, I don't know if Larkin would have played in an all-star game yet. Like it's, it's weird to think about, but this year he definitely wouldn't have, and he's having a great year. I, yeah. You consider but, the players they left off. There's cause there's yeah. like Tampa's and Florida's who can send six guys each. Exactly. Right. Like, yeah, we've talked about it before. Uh, there's, you know, you look at Colorado, Tampa, Toronto, there's probably four to five players on each of those teams who are better than Dylan Larkin. We were, um, uh, Dimitri Tay made the comparison between Buffalo and Detroit, similar positions in terms of their trajectory as well. And I went, I, I rhymed off like five players on Buffalo's, uh, starting ro- or their uh, highest point getters, including a defenseman in Rasmus Dahlin, who ha- were all outpacing Dylan Larkin this season, who has been in Larkin has been Detroit's undeniable best player all year, a phenomenal player. But yeah. Yeah, that's not a slight at Larkin. Relative to his teammates, his uh, the position he's in, where he was drafted, oh, he's, he is over ex- overperformed expectations at every turn. And it's not a l- knock on Larkin, but Dylan Larkin will never be what Tage Thompson is now. He will never imagine the level of he, Rasmus Dahlin. Imagine saying that two years ago. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. but And that's fine. That's not a knock on Larkin, but you need guys who make Dylan Larkin look like a second line center because Dylan Larkin plays like a first line center. But guys, I got a, I got a secret for y'all. Most of the teams that win the Stanley cup, their second line center is a first line center. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So if you think Dylan Larkin's a first line center, good. I agree with you, but to win a cup, Dylan Larkin probably needs to be your second line center. Again, not a lot knock on Larkin, but that's the reality. Clint Banesh says, uh, on the topic of weaponizing cap space, Eric Carlson has four years remaining at 11 and a half per year. If the Sharks trade him and retain half, what would a team hypothetically say the Wings expect to receive to be the third broker in that trade to, uh, to retain more? Would it be worth it for the third team to enter in and do that? Thanks for all you do and keep up the great Red Wings podcast. Good oh, question. If you are, if the Red Wings are brokering, so what would that work out to be? Roughly $3 million yeah, for four it, years? Yeah, call it. 
Yeah, okay. So if that's about $3 million for four years, that's a first-round pick. 2.875. Yeah. It's retained half twice, 2.875, yeah. yeah. That, that's a first-round pick because I, that's a lot of years. Yeah, it's it's the length of time, right? Exactly. And also, let's not consider, like you have to also consider, it's not just taking a $5.75 million player and making him attainable for another team. It's taking an $11.5 million player and making him attainable for another team. Yeah. I understand that value has to be split across the two teams doing the salary retention, but you're you don't make air you don't just give someone Eric Carlson for nothing. Yeah, and I don't know if there's a team in the league that'll be willing to retain four years of salary on a player. I, I just that is a lot to ask because most teams expect themselves to be good within four years, and they don't want to lose the ability to go right to the cap by the time they are good. You know, if Detroit really wanted to weaponize their cap space this year and, and help a team out, they're probably looking at Patrick Kane. Because that's only one year and Detroit's not going to need that cap space this year. So if they retained half, uh, acted as a broker, I don't think they get a first round pick for doing that, but I bet they get a second round pick, which, yeah. you know, they, uh, Eisenman did a great job weaponizing the cap space uh, when he got Mark Stahl. But my actual maybe biggest criticism of Steve Eisenman is he has not weaponized the Red Wings cap space as much as he probably could have to this point because they have not maxed out their seller cap at all. So, you know, if I look at Eric Carlson, I actually look at a player that, hey, if the cost and retention is right, that's probably a player they could really use. Forget retaining on Eric Carlson. Find a way to get Eric Carlson. Yeah. Uh, question here from Glenn Brabham uh, says, is there a limit on how much you can front load a contract? And is it, is it possible to use this in such a way to help uh, sign Dylan Larkin? Like just give him all the real dollars you can ASAP, but keep that AAV at or below Stevie's line. So yes, they they do limit it. Uh, thank you, Lou Lamorello and Ilya Kovalchuk for spurring. Well, they weren't the only ones, but uh, that's going to be always going to be the face of front-loading contracts. But yeah, um, I'm quoting a, oh, I don't know the site right in front of me here. Front-loaded contracts, the salary var- variance in any adjacent years cannot exceed 35% of the salary in the first contract year, regardless of whether the salary is increasing or decreasing. And the lowest salary year cannot be less than 50% of the highest salary year. So that limits your range right there. Uh, but yeah, can you still front load within those parameters? Yeah, absolutely. Money now is worth more than money later. Players usually have really good financial advisors who will tell them that. Not only that, there's things that you can do by paying out a lot of their salary in terms of signing bonus. Signing bonuses are protected from lockouts. So if the NHL does lock out in whichever year that is specifically, you'll find a lot of contracts that year uh, their contract will be paid by sal- uh, signing bonus. If it's just base salary, then if they miss games because of a lockout, then those players miss salary. So you give it some lockout protection by making it uh, a signing bonus, whatever it might be. But yeah, you you are limited in how much you can front load. So that stops you from giving, um, you know, Larkin a eight-year deal where pretty much all the money is there in the first five years. In the last three years, you pay him $500,000 or something like that. Like You can't do that anymore. All right. Brad, do you feel like we got a little bit heated when we got uh, the question about are things really bleak with uh, the eyes are playing in the Red Wings? That wasn't the question, but like, you know, where are we at? It felt like a lot, like a event hood opened up. Yeah, kind of, honestly. I stand by it. It's uh, it, Max said today on on our our spot on Dimitri show, the Red Wings, like Red Wings fans, how ha- now have more to worry about in both directions. 
the tanking and Bedard direction and the playoff direction and like where are they going to get elite talent and, 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 and like that's part of moving out of the basement is, uh, there's no, there's way less risk free. Um, it's the cost of trying to be a good team when you have no expectations. Yeah. Things suck in the hockey is shitty, but you have no expectations, but now expectations are there for Eisenman. And I'll say for anyone who has been saying the Red Wings fans should be zeroing in on that, I don't think they're wrong. All right. We're going to wrap up this episode of the Wing Wheel Podcast. We'll be back with you on Sunday to celebrate eight years and well over 600 episodes of the Wing Wheel Podcast. Brad, to that I say, holy shit. Um, good on us for hanging in there. I think legally you are one of uh, my best friends. I thought I just had a stroke. It was a sneeze. Um, Thank you all so much for tuning in. uh, Two games between now and then. If you are interested in going to the Vancouver game, meeting Ken Daniels and getting a Wing Wheel podcast, Mickey Redmond style flannel, uh, go to the link in the description of this episode and bid. Bidding ends Thursday night. So if you're listening to this on Thursday, you might still have time. Thursday night at 11 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Again, the bid is at like 125 bucks right now. That is a wonderful price for a meet and greet with Ken two great tickets to the Red Wings game and a uh, custom flannel. We'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, to any of you potential sponsors out there. Thank you in advance. Reach out to us. Swing podcast at gmail.com. All of our patrons, uh, our name level Patreon supporter couldn't do it. Supporters couldn't do it without you. Uh, Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand foundation, uh, ache for armchair GM slash genius, Nick perks, Terry driver for the number 69 crying Ryan, Hannes banana, Simon Jimathong. Glenn Brabham, Aiden White, Keenan O'Donohue, Johnny Burgers, Meals on Wheels, Matthew M. Rice, Mitch's Nicotine Patch, GoFundMe, Babe Landiscog, Carl Brutanen, Anna Chimmy, Chris P., Sizen High Five, Connor Scovey, Coyote Season Tickets, and Tempe, Denny's Gamer Girl, Derek Enstam, DJ Denton, Give Blood, Fight Probert, Red Hot Ronick, Hassan Malkasem, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joel Miranda, Joseph Berry, Kalen Wood, Kevin James, King Tone, Las Ensaladas Picantes, Marcus, Massive Wong, Evan Longsaber, Matt McKay, Michael Edland, Nadelkovich, goalie number one, Nicholas Fritz, R.A., Ryan Hanzondi's nuts, haha, <laughs> got him. <laughs> Ryan Hubbard, Scott Martin, send it Seawolf. That's what I appreciate about you. Uh, General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army, Sam Bankson, number one Detroit Red Guys fan. Am I a patron or a winged wheel podcast producer? Antonio Gracias, uh, Ben Barron, proud member of the Jake Wellman Gritty Club, Brad Simmons, Brian Vasha, Carl Thames, Connor Leitnan, Darren Fick, Philip Zadiznuts, Grand Rapids Hockey Guy, Griffey Boy, Ronix Handlebar. I can't tell if this next name is dirty or not. <laughs> I don't know if I want to say that one. Reed, I'm going to hold off on that one because I'm not sure. <laughs> James Laporte, Jeremiah Dobo, JM Rhapsody. Uh, John Evans, John Ingalls, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Lieutenant Matt S. of the Cheesebag Army, Linda Hull, Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, Ophelia, Servo, Steven, The Hodag, and finally my favorite patron, Matt Keeler. Thank you all so very much, and we will talk to you on Sunday. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.